You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. Exodus. Deliverance. A way out. When the Israelites were captive to a bondage forged by human hands, God delivers. When the idolatry of their human hearts was louder than the hunger after their God, God is faithful. When God's people forfeited the blessings of his divine presence, God restores relationship. At the moment, God meets with Moses on the mountaintop. He has already saved them. God redeems and brings his people into freedom and then provides instruction on how to live. Be holy for I am holy, for you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Be holy and show the nations who I am. Moses, an instrument of God's rescuing, leads the Israelites out of physical bondage in Egypt. Yet he is a mere shadow, a pale precursor to the one who leads God's people out of eternal spiritual bondage and sin, Jesus Christ, the one who came to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and to set the oppressed free. This is a story of rescue and freedom a story of God's desire to dwell with his people, a story of grace upon grace. Good morning. If you guys would, church family, turn to Exodus chapter 18. That's where we're going to be at this morning as we continue our series titled Grace Upon Grace. We're walking through the book of Exodus. Let's also recognize this, that on Sunday morning, We've arrived here, but the way we got here maybe looked different for some people. So I'm going to pray for us in a moment. And as I pray for you guys, you guys can also pray for me. I have three sick kids at home. Thankfully, my wife made it this morning. And yeah, we got in a little tiff before, but we're doing good now. And so you guys can just be in prayer for us. So uh, as I pray for you guys, pray for me. The beauty and the glory of this is the gospel and a gospel identity. We don't have to church. We don't have to come to church to try to appear to have some sort of image or to have our act together. We have an identity rooted groundly and firmly in Christ. And so we can be real with where we're at and also know that God meets us there. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time together. Thank you that we're here. And maybe it's true for many that there was disunity amongst the home, amongst relationships. Maybe, maybe there's a ton of fractions that are in the relationships within families, Father, that are outside of these walls this morning. We recognize this, that you are God and Lord over all. So we thank you first for your grace as we talk about it this morning. Father, that we have from you something that we have not earned, something that we have not worked for. We have your acceptance, your love, and your approval based upon your grace and faithfulness alone. Remind us this morning, God, because we're so quickly to forget who you are and what you've done in your son and what you provided. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for our time to, together, the time that we can dive into your word. For those that are hurting, for those that are grieving, for those that are going through difficult times, I pray as a church family, we would come alongside them and grieve with them. I pray for those that are rejoicing and celebrating that we would rejoice and celebrate with them this morning. 
Father, thank you so much for the gift of your word that you've revealed yourself to us, that we can know you. We can know your holiness. We can know your goodness. We can know your power. We can know your love and we can know your kindness. Father, thank you that you've sent your son to do the work that we can never do. You've given us an unshakable identity, Jesus. And because of that, we can be real with where we're at. But we pray this morning, Father, you would calm minds, you would calm spirits, and you would speak to us. You would challenge us, you exhort us, you would encourage us through your word this morning. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our main point this morning as we dive into Exodus chapter 18 is going to be we are united and delighted by the good news. We are united and delighted by the good news. Quick story. Yesterday I took our second oldest daughter, her name is Brooks, to the emergency room because she's had a fever as of yesterday for eight days. So I took her there to figure out what's going on with her. And so one of the things when they called her back that they said that they were going to have to do is they were going to have to swab her nose and check to see if she has RSV, COVID, or influenza. And so they asked me as dad, they said, dad, would you mind holding her arms down? And, and in my mind, I'm like, yeah, actually, I do mind. A, I'm not on the payroll here. Uh, B, she bites. And so it's, it's a true story. Like, my daughter bites, and, if, and she'll do that. I remember I, I no longer had to be convinced of the doctrine of original sin after having kids. And I'm convinced I'm not going to argue that with anyone anymore. If someone comes to me and says, I don't believe in original sin, which is the doctrine that, that, that is stated that we are all born with a fallen and sinful nature, I, I will just strictly say this. The Bible makes that clear, but do me a favor. Come back to me after you have a kid, and by the time that kid reaches five years of age, and let me know if you still want to have this debate. That's how, it, that's how I would do it. So I was there, held her down, they put the swab in there, the results came back, and the results were negative for all those things, praise God. But it also led to her having to get an x-ray to check her lungs and do all this. And so the purpose of me sharing that is simply this. Those things that we did yesterday are able to point to to and tell if there's a specific problem. When you go in and have an x-ray or when you have a swab test done, that is going to tell you if something is wrong. They are looking at that to see if you have one of these viruses. They are looking at that to see if you have pneumonia in your lungs. What we would never expect for those tests to do is to somehow change the outcome. And so if the swab came back positive or if the x-ray came back with pneumonia in the lungs, we wouldn't look to the x-ray machine or to the swab to say, okay, now that you've told us what the problem is, can you fix the problem? I'm looking to you to fix the problem. We would say that makes no sense. They are a diagnostic tool that teach us what the problem is. In the same way, when we come to God's word, we must understand what the law is and what the gospel is and not confuse those. The law can diagnose our problem, that we have rebelled against a holy God, but the law is not able to save or transform our hearts. It can simply tell us what the problem is. Only the gospel, the good news, is the very thing that can supernaturally transform a heart by giving us a new heart that is able to walk in obedience to God. But if you cross those, if you mix those up at all, you're going to have religion, which means this. If I obey God's law, then I'm in good standing with God. If I obey God's law, then surely God will accept me. That's not the Christian message at all. It's contrary. In fact, the gospel is, the good news comes to us, that God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and then he gives us the law. The reason this is important, because this is where we're going to find ourselves today in the Exodus story. Chapter 18, 
and what's going on. And so far, we have this. In the Exodus story, we've seen these, this incredible event that's taking place, the 10 plagues. We've seen people enslaved by horrible people called the Egyptians. And what we've seen is God delivering them, taking them through the Red Sea. And now they're on the other side of the Red Sea. And actually now they're on Sinai and they're getting ready to receive God's law, the Ten Commandments. But what, they, what we don't see is this. And you have to hear this. And it's going to be redundant. And I'm okay with that. God did not say, here's my law. Obey this and I will deliver you. God said, here's my deliverance. I have completely delivered you from this oppressive nation. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. Now here's my law. Obey it. It's not flip-flopped. It's not law. Come on, get this down and then we'll discuss it. Maybe I'll deliver you. I've fully delivered you by my grace, by my hands, by my work. Here's the law. Live in accordance with it because of what I have done. So this morning we're going to look at we are united and delighted by the good news. The good news being the gospel, which I will unpack as we go on this morning. So we are united and delighted by the good news. Chapter 18, verse 1. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' Moses's father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home. Along with her two sons, the name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. So what we have here is amazing because the text starts off by telling us about this man named Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, but it also says he's a Midian priest, which means this, this man is a priest of a foreign religion. So this man is a Midianite, he's a Gentile, and he's a priest of a false religion. So this man is coming to Moses, and he is Moses' father-in-law, and he's bringing with him Zipporah, Moses' wife, and their two sons. So why the separation? Most people likely believe that the reason they are not together is that Moses at some point during all that was happening in Egypt sent them away to go back to his father-in-law to be held in safety until the appropriate time, which makes sense. Moses essentially told his father-in-law chapters before this, he's like, hey, God is calling me to go back to Egypt to rescue and deliver my people. We can only assume that Jethro might have been like, man, good luck. These people are powerful. But God promised Moses earlier on in this narrative account, he's like, hey, this very mountain, Horeb, Sinai, which you are at, just know this, at, at some point, what I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver you and I'm going to deliver my people and you will come back to this mountain and you will worship me. What we are actually seeing is the fulfillment of God's promises. Know this, God makes good on every one of his promises. We can stake our life on that, that God fulfills all of his promises. He makes good on his word. This is proof that God did this. The, the, the impossible task of a, a, a people group being delivered by this oppressive, powerful nation was all done by God's power, by God's faithfulness, and by God's goodness. 
And the result of that is we have a family reunion right here. It's also significant, the names that are given to the sons that we see here. For we have, in verse 3, it says that the one son's name was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land, and the other is Eleazar, for he said, the God of my father was my help. The names are significant. Moses felt a sojourner in a foreign land and recognized the number one thing that he had was God as his help. Many times we in this life on this earth feel like sojourners, feel like foreigners, We have a level of discontentment that people are constantly looking for the next career, the next job, the next stage in life to try to satisfy some level of discontentment. I'm single if I could be married, if I could have this, if I could have that, without recognizing this true fact. In some, to some level and to some degree, we are going to have discontentment in this life until we recognize this, that our greatest contentment was not to be found in this world or something that the world provides, but in the king of this world, Jesus Christ. And so we can continue to try and strive and find contentment in thing after thing, in season after season, in next step after next step, until we realize that our greatest contentment is only going to be found in one person, Jesus Christ, and his lordship over our lives and with us reigning and ruling with him on this earth for all of eternity. And we see that Moses started to understand that. In fact, he understood it so much that he named his sons names that represented that. What we are getting to see next is just how Satan knighted and delighted by the good news. Look here in verse 8. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. We have to see this. We have to see what took place here. Moses told his father-in-law all that he had done. No, Moses didn't give him a bunch of good advice. Moses wasn't sitting around telling him, hey man, just you know, if a bunch of locusts come, these are three good things you can do when locusts come in. Hey, whenever hailstorms come, these are three ways that you can do this. Hey, this is what I did. Hey, this is how I led the people. What he's simply telling him is this. This is what the Lord, Yahweh, has done to save and redeem and deliver his people. What he's doing is sharing with him the good news of God's work that he did to redeem his people. It's not telling him, a motivational speech. Hey, here's all the 10 things you should do. It's not an inspirational speech. It's not, hey, here's what man should do. The essence of preaching is declaring who God is and what God has done. The essence of preaching is declaring and sharing who God is and what he's done. The essence of preaching is not for a preacher to step inside the pulpit and give you a list of things to do. It's not to give you a motivational and inspirational speech of how you can live your best life now. What we are called to do and what actually unites us is a message of who God is and what God has done. We are united and delighted by the message of the good news. Moses was simply telling his father-in-law, isn't that as Christians what we're called to do? We're called to share our testimonies and what our testimonies are are, are meant to do is highlight God's saving and redeeming work to us through and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Moses takes him into the tent and he starts telling him, look at what God has done. Look at the way that he's delivered us. Look at what God has provided for him. Again, he's not offering him good advice. The message of the gospel is not good advice. The message of the gospel is good news. 
Here's what God has done. Here's how he's delivered us. Look at 10 through 12. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Look at what happens. Moses takes his father-in-law, brings him into the tent, and tells him all about what God has done. Jethro's response. Remember, Jethro, a Gentile man who would be unclean to Jewish people, who would be outside of the circumcision covenant. Jethro, a Midianite man, is now declaring, I know who God is. I know who the true God is. It's Yahweh. It's not in these other gods. We have seen the way that God has moved and worked. Do you see what's happened here? Imagine how crazy it would have been if my daughter Brooks in the hospital took her swab and started rubbing it all over her body. We would have been like, I would have been like, what are you, what are you doing? Imagine if she took the x-ray paper and started holding it up to her chest or trying to do something with it. We'd be like, what, what are you doing? Imagine if you go in for an eye exam and you look at the chart and you realize you have really bad vision and the chart makes that really clear, and you go over and take the chart off the wall, and you start rubbing it on your eyes. People would be like, what are you doing? Because what we have to recognize is these very things that expose our problems are not the very thing that is able to solve our problems. The swab can only tell you what's wrong. The x-ray can only tell you if there's a problem, and the eye chart can only tell you have bad vision. They are completely incapable of giving you better vision, of solving or fixing your lungs, or of taking away whatever virus you have. Going to people and telling people, be better, try harder, do more, stop living this way, start living this way, is a damning message for people. If it's not first, the message of the gospel, which is the good news. Moses could have went into the tent and told Jethro, hey Jethro, here's the 10 things you need to do in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. And once you do these, maybe then you can. We know this, that this, actually, this passage, Genesis 18, actually happened on the other side of Mount Sinai. So it actually happened on the other side of Moses receiving the law from God. How do we know that? I don't know if we have a slide for it, but I will read from Deuteronomy, which says this. This is 9 through 19. At that time, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold... You are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. Maybe the Lord, the God of your fathers, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are and bless you as he promised you. How can I bear by myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over, your, uh, over you, command, charged you, your commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. And I charged you, your judges at that time, hear cases between your brothers and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who was with him. You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. This is Moses speaking. And I commanded you at that time, 
all the things that you should do. Look here, verse 19. Then we set out from Horeb and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Amorites as the Lord our God commanded us. So we know that this actually took place on the other side of Moses receiving the law from God, on the other side of Horeb. And we actually know that because as we're going to see on the second half of this, Moses is, is, is giving his law, God's law, to the people of God. How would he know what that law is unless he had first received that law from God? And so Moses is telling him, and he's, he's adjudicating between cases. They're bringing cases to him, and he's saying, here's how God's law applies. So the question becomes this. Why would the author Moses place this setting before Mount Sinai? That's the question we have to answer. Why would he set this before Mount Sinai? And, and I believe the answer is simply this, to show and remind us time and time again that people of all races, from all different classes, are not saved by God's law and our adherence to it, our submission to it. All people are saved by the gospel of God's grace, period. We are all saved by the gospel of God's grace, and then the law comes in and governs our lives. It's good, and it tells us how to live. The, the law can expose, like an x-ray, it can show us a problem, but it cannot fix our heart. Blood work can tell you have cancer, but it can't do anything about getting it out. The law can show us that we're exposed, but it cannot give us a new heart of obedience. What Moses did is he took his father-in-law to the tent and told him all about what God has done. And then the result of that is this man, his father-in-law, Midianite priest, is converted to Yahweh and becomes a child of God because of the good news. Guys, this is important because nowadays what you are going to hear is if you want to create unity, and, and, and you want unity amongst people, what you need to do is, is preach this or say this or talk about this or do this or do that. If we want to see people united and truly united, we have to preach the gospel. Truly united. Again, this is not being divided on trivial matters because everyone in this room has different opinions on stuff. I'm not one that likes you guys to raise your hands because I know a couple things. Some don't like raising their hands. It makes you uncomfortable. The others don't do it because you're too cool. So, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand, just to, just to state a point. How many of you in this room like country music? Raise your hand. My goodness, you guys are saved. <laughs> Stirs my affection immediately. How many of you in this room, and don't be shy, just because now you know that you're gonna be the oddball, how many of you hate country music? Okay, good, way to be bold, that's impressive. Okay, yeah, you guys can leave, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> so, how many of you guys love cats? Raise your hand. Okay. All right. How many of you guys think like me that they're the spawn of Satan? Okay. We're, we're pretty divided. Why do I do that? Because there's always all these, all these types of things that we can disagree on. But the very thing that unites Christians across the world is who Christ is and what he's done. It's his blood. We can disagree on a lot of stuff. We can disagree on politics. We can disagree on music. We can disagree on cats. We can disagree on a lot of stuff. The very thing that unites us is the gospel. I would say this. Ronnie, one of our elders, and myself might not ever be friends. He is one of the ones that I'm sure raised his hand to hating country music. I asked Ronnie to go hunting with me when, when we first moved here. He's like, I, I, don't, I don't think it's for me, you know? And so there's a lot of things that would say that like we're, we're likely not going to be friends. But that is my dear friend who I would give my life for and love deeply. And the thing that binds us together has nothing to do with those trivial matters. It's that we are united by the blood and the work of Jesus Christ. 
said something greater. The thing that we have to put in front of people is not, hey, stop doing this. Hey, start doing this. Those things aren't bad, and we'll get to those. But the very first thing that we need to do is, this is who Christ is. This is the message of the gospel, and this is what we need to believe. Not behave, believe. Look at what Ephesians 2, 11 through 16 says. This is Paul. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, just like Jethro, the Midianite, in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. That means Jewish people actually had a derogatory name for Gentiles. They would, in, in a mean way, they would call them the uncircumcised, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Moses puts us here to show the very way that a Midianite priest is converted and that people are joined together around a meal that we can see is because of the work that God has done, because of the message of that good news, and there's a sacrifice. Christians come together and we're united by the work that Christ has done and by the sacrifice of his blood. That's what unites us. What is the good news? Here's the good news. The good news is there's a man named Jesus Christ who came and lived on this earth and walked in obedience. His behavior was perfect. His performance was perfect, and then he went to the cross. And there he bore the perfect righteous judgment of God for sins that he had never committed, but that we had committed against God. There he gave his life as a substitute. There he went into the tomb, and there he was rose, proving all that he said to be true. Christian, man and woman, please listen. You are saved by behavior. You are saved by obedience, and you are saved by performance. But you are never saved by your obedience, by your behavior, by your performance. The good news of the gospel is you will always be saved by the behavior, by the obedience, and the performance of Jesus Christ in your place. That's it. It's the message of the gospel. When that message comes forward, what happens is it unites people who have all sorts of differences like Jew and Gentile together. That's why we are united and delighted by the good news. So if you're going to come in and tell people, hey, the very thing that people need to be united is to start adopting PC language or to start living this way, the thing that's going to unite us is the gospel, and God's word makes that clear. What happens as a result is this. When, when we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ and his obedience and his behavior and his performance is transferred to us and our disobedience is transferred to him, what actually happens is we're united to God, reconciled. Think about COVID. The most painful things about COVID, reflecting back on it, is people that died without getting to be there with their family members. People literally watched their family members die on an iPad screen. Maybe that's the case for some of you, and maybe that's the case for some of your friends and loved ones. I think that is the most painful thing as we look back and think through is the absence of relationship for people that were dying. A disease caused a level of separation. The disease of sin causes a level of separation between us and God that Jesus takes care of. A massive chasm that he says only I can bridge the gap. 
But then what it also does and what the gospel does is it reconciles us to God and then it reconciles us to one another. That's why we see here that they were all coming together and having a meal together. That's what the gospel does. The good news of Christ's work on the cross then reconciles us to God and it brings us into a family. We have unity. What it also does is maybe some of you this morning feel like God doesn't love me or I've strayed too far, I've done something too much. Please hear this. God is unchangeable. And the moment that God saves you based upon the work of Jesus Christ, we'll use this as an example. A light switch is flipped on. The light switch of his love is on. And here's the thing. There is no dimmer on it. It, it, it never turns off. It never dims based upon what you do or don't you do. God's love is on consistently at all times for you. He's the one with the only access to the switch. And here's the thing. He'll never turn it off because that would be a change. And God is not going to change about his love and his affections for you. Those are secured by Christ. We can rest in that. But we also recognize that in this, this Christianity thing is not some individual thing. It's us being united to God and to one another. We have a family for eternity. We will be hanging out, celebrating a meal together for all time. What is the meal? We're going to take a meal later today, and it's called communion. It's not some privatized event where you go and and, and do something by yourself. What actually is happening at the meal is so beautiful. It's Christian men and women all around the world coming together to have the same meal. And what it is, is it's it's a meal of faith. It's a meal of proclamation. What we're saying is, hey, you and me, We're equal on the grounds of what Christ has done, but we're going to this table to say this. I'm not celebrating my works, my merit, and my effort. I'm celebrating faith in Christ. Every week we go to the table, what we're saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we're still placing our trust and faith in him and his works. Yeah, yeah, you too, me too, cool. That's where we're at. It's not about my adherence to the law. It's not about my obedience. It was about his. That's why we take communion. That's why it's a beautiful picture throughout church history. But we also recognize because of the gospel that Christianity is the most diverse Religion, so to speak, though I hate that word, in the world. Look at this quote. One of the most unique things about Christianity is that it is the only truly worldwide religion. Over 90% of Muslims live in a band from Southeast Asia to the Middle East and Northern Africa. Over 90% of all Hindus live in India and and immediate areas around that. Some 88% of Buddhists are in East Asia. About 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% in Central and South America, 22% in Africa, 15% in growing fast in Asia, and 12% in North America. Professor Richard Bakken's writes, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. As we have seen, Christianity has been, the, has been growing explosively in Asia and Africa for over a century now. It is no longer a Western religion, nor was it originally. It is truly a worldwide religion. Why? The blood and sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the message of the good news. And Christians all around the world doing what Moses is doing here. We have the same job. Herald, preach, tell, share of what God has done through the person and work of his son. We are united and delighted by the good news. Now, let's look at this. Everyone loves the good news. like, ah, man, tell me about that light switch thing one more time in God's love. But then when we get to God's law, everyone's like, ah, I don't know about that, right? God's God's law is good. It comes from God. And the very thing that motivates us to keep God's law is knowing this, that we're not changing God by our obedience to it. God's love is set. That switch is on. However we obey it day in and day out is not the very thing that is contingent upon God's love. So remember that. 
But that motivates us because now we're not going, okay, I'm going to obey this law in hopes that I can manipulate God to love me. No, that's taken care of by Christ. We obey the law as Christ motivates us to and know that it's actually going to produce fruit and joy in our lives. Because when we get to talking about the law, people love to say like, and if you're going to challenge people and call them out on, on their life that's living inconsistent, they're like, hey man, you know what the Bible says? Only God can judge me. Actually, it doesn't. Tupac said that, but the Bible doesn't. In fact, read 1 Corinthians 5, read 2 Thessalonians 3, read Matthew 7. It's actually talking about us judging one another in a loving sort of way, calling one another, exhorting one another. So what we see here and what we're going to see is that we are united by the good news, but we are delighted. In other words, what I'm, what I'm saying is we are delighted to live in obedience to God's law because of the good news of what Christ has done. Look here, and I'm not going to be able to read all of it starting in 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Let's jump ahead. Verse 17. This is, this is Jethro now. A, a, a newly converted man to Yahweh is saying this. Moses, Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. Look at what he was saying. First, he says in 19, he's like, I'm going to give you advice. Know that advice comes after news. So we don't say, here's some, here's some good advice, obey it. We say, here's the good news. Receive it, believe it. And then we have the advice. We have the gospel, and then we have God's law that, that empowers us to believe it. You know what is amazing about this? Is this chapter, Exodus 18, has been used time and time again as a proof text to try to prove a model for the way churches should function. We, we saw that with Mars Hill. We saw that in many ways, but we see it still today with the Calvary Chapel movement. It's called the Moses model. What, what people are doing is pointing to Exodus 18, forgetting this. If you take a class in seminary, one of the first classes you'll take is called hermeneutics. One of the best lessons in hermeneutics that you will learn is to understand the literary genre of what you're reading. This is a descriptive narrative. It's describing a historical event. It's not a prescriptive text telling us exactly how to govern a 21st century church. The byproduct of that has been men elevated to a position, one man leading a church that's uh, super appointed and super anointed, so much so that you hardly get access to him. We've seen the abuse of that. What you actually see here is not a model that you see a humble man who's willing to be challenged. You ever try to challenge someone who's living out of the Moses model, try to schedule a meeting with that person, try to get near that person, try to offer any sort of critique to that person. It'll be really difficult for you. I love this. A brand new converted man comes to Moses and says, hey, what you're doing is not good. Obey my voice. And Moses is like, all right, let's do this. Today, we've reduced Christian community into a good game club. Hey, man, uh, I think I want to be a part of the church. And, and what people are saying is like, I want you to be a part of me and what I'm doing over here and just come along and give me good games. But as soon as you get challenged, you're like, whoa, you're challenging me for it. It's a, it's a very good thing to see what we're seeing here and for us to do it, for us to be challenged as people. A brand new believer is challenging Moses, whoa. And, and Moses doesn't go, know, know your place. Know your place, boy. I'm the appointed and anointed one here. He receives it. Let me ask you this. Are there areas of your life where you can't be challenged? What are your no-fly zones? Where can people not speak to you? And my question is, are you resting in your new identity in Christ? I met with a, one of the, 
say, a faithful family member of our church a couple weeks ago who wanted to offer me some constructive criticism on my preaching. And I sat with him and I told him the first thing, what I have, you can't take away from me. So speak freely. What I was saying is, I'm a child of God. You can't mess with that. Therefore, we can receive challenges. Brad, our executive pastor, popped into my office and he said, hey, Rick, I've noticed something about you. You make a lot of commitments, but not a lot of faithfulness has followed through with that. I needed to hear that. Popped in his office and offered him challenges of where I see him, uh, areas that he needs to grow in his marriage. There were some men in the office the other day, and I asked them, I was like, hey, I'm curious how you guys structure your budget and what percentage you give to the church. A lot of people be like, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. Here's the question. Can people challenge us even like we see here? Do we have the security of who we are in Christ to say, man, I'm here. Bring, bring the challenges. I'm a child of God. Nothing messes with that. Or do we say, no, 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 these are no-fly zones. With that said, we also see a lot of wisdom in descriptive texts like this. And so where we wouldn't say this teaches us how to govern the 21st century church, it's pulling it out of context because Israel was a theocracy. What we can say is this. God's word has told us how to govern the church nowadays. Through a plurality of elders submitted to God's word, shepherding God's people. In fact, the reason why we have membership, ladies and gentlemen, is because there's a group of committed members that are saying, hold me accountable to live according to God's word. And I want to hold one another, including our pastors, accountable to live according to God's word. One of, the, one of my favorite things about church membership and even church membership here is every one of our elders is assigned to a member or a, a, a family, and every member is assigned to an elder. So our elders are able to give account for those they are taking care of, that they're shepherding, that they're leading, that they're preaching the good news too. In fact, my favorite time about our elders meetings is that we start off giving praise for what God is doing in our members' lives and also praying for them. What we can see is what Moses' father-in-law was doing is saying, hey, you need to know who your people are and be able to give an account for them. We would say, yeah, membership is one practical way we can do that as a church family. We are united and delighted by the good news. Because of the good news, because of the gospel, because of what Christ has done, we can look at God's law and not go, oh, but we can look at it and go, good. Christ fulfilled that now. Because of my holiness and the empowerment of the Spirit living inside of me, I too can fulfill that. And I have brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church, that are holding me accountable to live according to this. Don't be surprised and offended if someone's not just giving you good games I recognize that the people that love me deeply are the people that offer challenges to me in my life. We are united and delighted by the good news. And what we see in this is a man willing to take advice from a brand new believer. What we also see in closing today, look here with me, verse 25. Moses chose able men out of Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands of hundreds of fifties and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. What God was doing, and we see this in 1 Peter, God was creating a priesthood of believers. I know priest is something that's far removed from us, but what a priest did is a priest made sacrifices for themselves and sacrifices for other people so that people could dwell in the presence of a holy God. We too now are priests in the sense that what we are called to do is we are called to take the sacrifice to, uh, of, of Christ to people, share with them how they can be reconciled to God. We are all called to do that. And in fact, the church working the way the church is intended to do is not a Moses model where that man up there is supposed to govern everything. In fact, the job of elders is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, not do all the work for them. 
And then we working together to love and serve one another actually get to watch the church family be built up and magnify who Christ is on this earth. And it becomes a beautiful picture for people to see. Be a part of a church family that heralds the gospel and be a part of a church family that actually challenges men and women to live consistently with the message of the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you that we are united and delighted by the good news of what Christ has done. As we take communion, we get to proclaim our faith not in our own works, not in our own merit, but in Christ. Let us celebrate. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.